The sounds of Four Freedoms Park on Roosevelt Island in New York, across the East River from the FDR driveway and the United Nations. It's an uplifting piece of public landscaping and it takes its name from a celebrated speech by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1941, a speech which went on to inspire the UN's founding principles. There was freedom of expression, freedom of worship, freedom from fear, and... Freedom from want, which translated into world terms, means economic understandings, which will secure to every nation a healthy, peacetime life for its inhabitants everywhere in the world. Fighting was raging in Europe, in Asia and North Africa. Still, the vision was being fleshed out. The freedom of want cherished by President Roosevelt would take shape as a resolve to deliver the world from hunger. And it would go on to become a specific mandate for a UN that had yet to rise from the debris of conflict. Here's FDR again at the UN Conference on Food and Agriculture in Hot Springs, Virginia in 1943. The primary responsibility lies with each nation for seeing that its own people have the food needed for health and life. Steps to this end are for national determination. But each nation can fully achieve its goal only if we all work together. Two years later, as the war ended, it was done. The Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, in short FAO, was born, very much thanks to a North American push. Founded in Quebec City, then headquartered in Washington, D.C., before finally moving to Rome a few years later. My name is André Vornik. I work for FAO, which is 75 this year. And in this series of podcasts, I will take you through how and why FAO came about, how its mission has shifted, and where it's going. But this will not be a strictly FAO-centric perspective. This organization, in fact, reflects and embodies the world's understanding of food and agriculture over the last three-quarter centuries. And in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, a climate emergency, and persistent conflict, it holds clues to how global thinking and acting about food may evolve over the next couple of decades. I'm now standing by the Circus Maximus in Rome, and a bit further up the road are the Baths of Caracalla. Bridging the space between these two ancient sites, is what's known locally as the Palazzo Fao, the headquarters of FAO. Construction of this building, which is clad in white travertine, began just before the war. Italy was a colonial empire at the time, and this was supposed to host the Ministry for Italian Africa. After the war, democracy came back to Italy, the colonial empire was dismantled, the Republic was proclaimed, and in 1951, the Italian government invited FAO to move to Rome and take over this building. And the reason FAO came to Rome was in recognition of the fact that this country had for several decades hosted an international institute of agriculture and indeed was the first nation to recognize the power of agriculture as a tool of international cooperation and progress for the entire world. I'm a forester by, by trade. 
my father always had an average of 250 laying chickens. Truman F. Peebles is, without a doubt, the oldest person I've ever interviewed. He's 108 years old. He came to Rome from Washington with FAO in 1951. His voice quavers, but still conveys the passion of that early post-war internationalist worldview. All of my early years were spent in FAO. Life was not my own, my life was FAO's. FAO then had a hundred, over a hundred countries, and they all had to come together. And so we had regional offices set up in Africa, in Asia, in South America. The emphasis at the beginning fell squarely on expanding agricultural production and productivity. And with good reason, it's hard for most of us today to imagine just how much the Second World War wrecked food and agriculture. Lizzie Collingham has researched the topic extensively. She's a British historian and author of The Taste of War. Lizzie, paint a picture for me of the world coming out of war uh, in 1945 and discovering the extent of hunger and, and suffering. I think uh, one point you make is that most people are confused. They have no idea how many people actually died of hunger and starvation and associated diseases as opposed to military deaths and so on. Yeah, I mean, I think even if you just take very cautious estimates, it's about 19.5 million people are calculated as having died as a result of military combat during the conflict. At least as many, if not more, so probably about 20 million people died during the Second World War as a result of hunger, starvation and malnutrition, which is, I think, an absolutely devastating figure. People have in Europe only have about half the food they would have had in 1939 available to them. So many Europeans are, in, especially in the cities, are eking out life, in effect, on a thousand calories a day. In Italy, they're down to about 600 calories a day. And we think about it, that's two slices of bread, maybe a bit of margarine, maybe a couple of potatoes a day. So people, of course, suffer from not just from starvation, hunger edema becomes a horrific epidemic. People with hunger edema, which is when their bodies swell up with uh, water and then also rickets, all those diseases of malnutrition, vitamin deficiency diseases rear their ugly heads. So people in Europe were absolutely on the edge. There's a, there's a very moving description by an American cook who comes into Europe and um, describing how the, the people in it would queue up outside the canteens and go through the garbage looking for old discarded cabbage leaves and things like that. And it made him cry to see these people reduced to skin and bone. Europe was in a terrible state. The, the entire world was hungry at the end of the war. And we are in 1945 and the world suddenly wakes up to this and thinks we need to do something about it. Well, the thing about it is that what you, once you get to the end of the war, people suddenly expect from one day to the next that things will get better. But of course, they get much worse because then you've got to deal with the devastation. And so people have been sort of hanging on hope 
towards the end of the war. But the war left agriculture in the most appalling state because the men go off to fight. So in Russia, for example, the agricultural labor force was largely women, old men and children. Uh, You can compensate for a lack of men if you have machinery. But of course, industrial production shifts towards munitions and tanks and so on. They don't make machines for agriculture. Draft animals also get taken into the military. So the women in Russia were left on their own, yoking themselves to the plows to plow the fields to grow food. So Russia was in a terrible state. China, China is devastated. Something like 15 million Chinese died uh, in the Second World War. 85% of this 15 million people probably died of deprivation and starvation. When they started, the nationalists started the war, they thought, well, we're an agricultural nation. We, we are the kind of nation that could survive the war. But the problem is that the least developed agricultural sectors were the ones least able to face these problems that war presented them with. So there's lack of fertilizer, lack of labor, transport links got cut, What happened is that the peasants would withdraw into self-sufficiency and grow only enough food to keep themselves going and not provide enough food to feed the cities. So that happened in Germany, in China, all over the world. Agriculture was in a devastated and appalling state. Except for North America. Except for North America. So the United States was the only country in the world to benefit from an agricultural boom during the Second World War. Now, this is partly to do with the fact that uh, North America was uh, lucky enough not to be invaded. Uh, There was no uh, problem of occupation of land in the United States, but not just that. The United States had the resources to produce artificial fertilizers, to continue to produce a limited number of um, agricultural machines. I mean, and they had enough resources to continue to grow enough food to feed their population and their military very well throughout the war. In a sense, there's nothing strange about the fact that the impetus for the creation of the United Nations and in particular for for an organization such as FAO comes from the United States because it's already being planned while the war is raging in Europe. Well, the FAO is born out of the Hot Springs Conference in 1943. And at first, the nutritionists and so on were a little bit um, worried that they'd just been called there to rubber stamp policies. But actually... Once the nutritionists became aware and the technicians and agricultural experts and so on became aware that they were being asked to come up with a post-war agenda, they, they, they threw themselves into this with enthusiasm. And the, at the Hot Springs Conference in 1943, uh, John Boyd Orr's film, The World of Plenty, was shown. And in The World of Plenty, he kind of spoke for many, many of these people's hopes so that the world would be able to harness science in order to increase yields and particularly to produce more protective foods like meat and dairy foods that that people uh, before the war had not had enough of. In peace or war, food is raw material number one. Without food, men die, even if all the banks are filled with gold. All over the world, men work on the land so that they may eat. Cereals, vegetables, meat and dairy produce, rice. The film expressed a hope that uh, science would 
be able to create more machinery, improve seas, improve livestock breeding. And indeed, he went on to become the first director general of FAO. Exactly. In 1945, he became the, the, the first director. So this was his vision. And also, very, very importantly, he had a vision that was that the world could come together collectively to organize in order to uh, feed the world equitably. Representatives of government have often in the past met to cooperate in war, to make treaties, or to make other arrangements to serve their national interest. But never before have so many governments agreed to cooperate on a worldwide plan to promote the well-being of the whole human family by abolishing hunger and poverty. And so in 1945, led by one visionary Scottish physician and biologist, FAO set out to provide technical assistance to grow stuff to feed a hungry world. It was about transferring knowledge and quickly, turning more land over to farming, fertilising it, planting it with better yielding crops and setting up vast irrigation schemes. Credit took off. Within 10 years, there were three times as many tractors in the world. Animal herds were registered, artificial insemination spread, and much of the soil of Asia, the poster child for the Green Revolution, came alive with improved varieties of rice. And here I am, leafing through FAO's first State of Food and Agriculture report, which came out in 1955. And as I go through it, the sense of achievement is palpable. The years 1945 to 1955 have seen more rapid and widespread advances in the technical methods of agriculture, forestry and fisheries than in any previous decade. Large scale For a quarter century or so, this generous, expansionary approach, the logic of more, the pursuit of plenty, would bear fruit. But by 1970, its limitations were to become apparent. International schemes of investment and technical assistance have been The world stood to learn that even enough food was not, in itself, enough to end hunger. President Roosevelt's freedom from want, in fact, lay in an ever-shifting beyond the hills, along a path that was never quite as straight as it seemed in 1945. In the next episode, we'll be hearing how the world and FAO adjusted course. Mm -hmm.